everyone. Welcome to the Badass Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Fox. Today's bonus episode features a chat I had recently with author Amy Tector. Amy's debut novel, The Honey Bee Emeralds, launched earlier this week, and it has a gorgeous cover that I just love. I'd pre-ordered it a couple of months ago, and I woke up on Tuesday, checked my email, and I had a nice little surprise waiting for me in my Kindle library. I didn't realize the date until then. I personally love it when that happens. It's like past me was thinking about future me and left me a nice little present. I'll leave it for Amy to tell you all about it in our interview. It was an absolute pleasure getting to know her, and I'm really excited to dive into this book and to see what's next in her writing and publishing journey. Amy Tector has spent more than 20 years plumbing the secrets squirreled away in archives, whether it's uncovering a whale's ear, yes, you heard that right, in a box of old photographs, or working for the United Nations International Criminal Tribunal in The Hague, she has been privy to hidden records and extraordinary secrets. She now works at Canada's National Archives, Library and Archives Canada, and is an adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa and a sessional instructor at Carleton University. Amy has a PhD in English Literature from Université Libre de Bruxelles and lives in Ottawa, Canada, with a daughter named Violet, a husband named Andrew, and a dog named Daffodil. And I apologize if I murdered that pronunciation. Hi, Amy. How are you? Great. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. So the first thing I want to ask is, what is the story behind the whale's ear? <laughs> that was super intriguing. <laughs> uh, it is a good little hook for people. Yeah. Um, well, as you know, I'm an archivist. And so, and I have been an archivist for 20 years. I've worked in the archives for 20 years, the National Archives in Canada. And you see a lot of strange things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and so I was a photo archivist at the time. This is a number of years ago. And a colleague came up to me and was like, Amy, come, come in here, get a load of this. And she had discovered, she was working on a, a collection of records from someone on the East Coast of Canada. That was our only clue. Um, and r- just 100% randomly found this old kind of yellowed envelope, just a regular envelope. On the front, it said whale's ear. So she was a little intrigued and she opened up the envelope and sure enough, inside were three or four sort of one inch, two inch bones, which we figured out were the the sort of those little bones that you have, (laughs) you're big because it's a whale and then little bits of cartilage. I remember it as having just the faintest fishy smell, but Mm -hmm. I I might've invented that. Like, (laughs) might be my... (laughs) Uh, poetic license coming there but yeah and it's I just really it stuck with me because it goes to show the sort of magical surprises that you can uncover in an archives when you're really you're expecting to find photographs and you find yeah just a whale who knew whales had ears but I I did not know I did not know they had ears well and they have similar just bigger bones than you know similar bones to us just bigger yeah so that's fascinating oh my goodness so would you, is, is it safe to say that's the, I guess, strangest thing you've ever found? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I claim it, but it was actually my colleagues. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was there. I was there. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> but yeah. When you're opening these containers, you often don't know what's going to be, what's going to be in there. There's often some, you know, odd things. There's lots of, you're supposed to sort of acquire sort of papers and photographs, audiovisual material, that sort of thing, but people's 
lives can get packed in there as well. So yeah. occasionally you'll find an item of clothing or a random bit of household something. <laughs> so wow. other other things creep in, but yeah, that was definitely the most unusual. And so you've been an archivist for 20 years, you said. Has this been useful at all in terms of research for your novels? Yeah, I, I really liked this question because it got me thinking what 100% working in an archives has done has inspired my novels. So mm-hmm. everything, almost everything I've written has had at least a bit of an archival setting because I think it's I think that it's so rich in terms of story possibilities. And again, mm-hmm. the sort of discoveries that you can make about the past in these buildings that contain all this stuff. So it has certainly in, inspired my writing in terms of knowing how to do research in an archives. Yeah, like as well, obviously, yeah. it's been hugely helpful to, to be immersed in that for 20 years. Every archives is different. So I'm an expert in Canada's National Archives. But if I were to go to another archives, it would have a different organization system. And that's, I can, I can talk about archives forever, but that's because <laughs> the nature of what gets collected sort of dictates how you describe and organize the material. So it's not standardized the way a library is which is why archival research takes a lot of time. And often you have to go on site because the material isn't digitized. Everyone oh. thinks, oh, everything's digital. I can go on site. And you can. Archives have done amazing jobs of digitizing and getting material online, but it's a tiny drop in the bucket. So if a writer is interested in doing like a deep dive into their subject matter, which I encourage people to do because mm-hmm. there's always unexpected things in there, you often have to plan to go on site. You have to... Yeah plan to have a research trip because it's rare that everything you want will have been digitized. And Mm -hmm. so you have to go on the hunt and go on the quest to find, to find, to ferret out those little secrets, which is part of the fun, but it's also time consuming and can be expensive. So Mm -hmm. it's the, the, the yin and the yang, the good. Yeah. Yeah. So, and with that, like, I don't know much about how that all works. So can anyone just go and do research there? Like, can they make a trip and plan everything? And yeah, most archives are publicly funded um, institutions like a, like a public library. Most countries have a national archives where they'll acquire the material related sort of that's nationally significant for that country. Then a province or state, a county, a region will also often have an archive. And then there can be local archives as well that will mm-hmm. be specific to a region. So if there's a local museum, it'll often have an archive attached to it as well or be okay. part of the museum. So you have to, with any kind of archival research, you have to do a lot of pre-research. You have to read the books, go, you know, do your online stuff, look at your YouTube videos, do all of that and kind of have a bit of a understanding of the subject matter so that then you can zero in if you then want to get the primary sources all the stuff that's never been published, that's just been created and, and kept for historians and academics and, and, and writers, mm-hmm. um, then, then you would have to figure out where that stuff might be and it might not exist at all. It might okay. never have been kept. Then you would zero in on a specific archives where you want to do that research and then you might have to go on site or at the very least, you'd have to get in touch with that specific archives. They usually have a researcher support and they're very happy to help researchers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can often write an email if it's far away and ask them to do a little research for you to help you out, to get you started. So that's also a possibility. Oh, I love that. I love research. I've always loved research. And I just, I 
tend to just dive in and then it's, you know, rabbit hole here, rabbit hole here and go well, on a lot of tangents. And yeah. it's so fascinating though. And the thing, and the thing about an archive, I can really nerd at it. <laughs> go right ahead. <laughs> fill me in at any point. The thing about an archive is when you're sitting there and you're touching the stuff, this is, it's not a facsimile. This is the, these are the letters that the person that you're interested in actually oh, wrote. This so is the cool. ink, this is the paper, this is the ledger or the, the official, you know, used to write down the name of the person entering the country or this person posed for this photograph that you're now staring at. So it's that tangible connection to history is so exciting. And I think for authors, it can be kind of exhilarating because it really uh, makes it very immediate for you that that this happened. And it makes you, I think, makes your story even more sort of compelling. That's, yeah, so it's uh, a lot of fun. <laughs> I've got to put that down on my list of things to do one day for research. <laughs> Another resource. <laughs> I've awesome. actually got um, an article I think, coming out at some point with Writer's Digest about doing some research at archives, what, what authors need to know to research. Oh, awesome. I'll have to look out for that then. Yeah. So regarding your writing background, you've been writing for 20 years. Well, my um, whole life. your whole life. Yeah. Um, and a couple of years ago, you signed your first contract and you have since signed for three more books. So were you writing novels during those 20 years or a different kind of writing? And you just recently started the novels or how, how has that worked for well, you? I've been, I've been writing novels for more than 20 <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Yeah. Always writing, always writing fiction, always, always writing creatively. And what made you decide that your debut novel was your book baby, the one that you were going to publish? Well, it's the one that was accepted for publication. So I've written, (laughs) I've written many novels in the course of, of my writing career. And I did, I think, probably what most people do, what's pretty common. I write the novel. I think this is it. I'm proud of this. I nailed it. I'm get some people to read it, give me their feedback, incorporate that, off I go, query process, and then was never able to secure an agent. So did that for a number of books. And, you know, <laughs> over, over the course of years, hundreds, I'm, I'm sure I've got hundreds of rejections racked up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kept going, which I think is like the most important thing to do is to assist. Yeah. And so this book, which was, I think, my fifth novel that I'd finished, is my debut, but it's certainly mm-hmm. not the first book I wrote. And I'm excited that it is this one though, because I, I think I've incorporated all of that stuff that I've learned, the self-funded 20-year MFA that I Yeah. <laughs> you know, because it's co- it's more complicated. It's got multi-POVs and some different storylines and speaks to history and, and the present day and all sorts of stuff happening. So I'm super excited that this is the book that is my debut. Yeah. And I'm really proud about it and happy. All of those other books. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a common thing, I think, for, for several novels to have been written and you go through the same process. And I don't like seeing, like, you know, you, sometimes you hear people saying, you know, oh, what a waste, but it wasn't a waste at all because all of those things that you wrote have contributed to improving yourself to the point where you have something that's ready to be published. And I think Everyone should write a few books before yeah. they have their first one published because it's so important. You learn a lot in that process. Oh, 100%. That first book I wrote, I thought I had nailed it. I, yeah. was, I was, I don't know what I was, 20, 25, <laughs> and I was like an author. And obviously, I, it was going to be amazing. And I mean, now it's unreadable. I'm so embarrassed about it. It's, <laughs> it's terrible. But the other thing, too, is those other books, some of them are now publishing. So 
my publisher was interested in my sort of my unpublished back catalog. And so mm-hmm. I'm able, I've taken them out and dusted them off and improved them and, mm-hmm. and they're going to be published. So That's these amazing. things that I had really consigned to, like, I loved them and I was really proud of them, but I thought they're not going to see the light of day. And if and a couple, well, two of them are, so mm-hmm. hang on, don't, don't chuck, don't. Yeah, shit. no. <laughs> Put them in the drawer, put them in the bottom of the drawer, but keep them there. (laughs) I mean, you could have, like, there is no way I would have thought a year ago or a year and a half ago that I'd be having three books published. But Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. So what sorts of resources did you rely on to help get your book written and polished for publishing? So obviously you learn things along the way, but did you have a critique group, beta readers, things like that? Yes. For me, the, like, the reason that I'm that I continue to write over 20 years is this wonderful critique group that I am lucky enough to be part of. That we came together 20 years ago, which is crazy to me now to think. And it was through um, the sort of continuing education leisure classes that the city offered. And so we all there was a there was one that was called Learn to Critique. So it wasn't Learn to Write; it was Learn to Critique. And and I signed up for it because I thought. I was 25 and thought I already know how to write. I'm an expert in that. (laughs) That's not important, (laughs) but I should learn how to critique. And it was a great class and sort of taught you the basic, you know, how to read, you know, not as a fan and not as a jerk, but how to read in a constructive way. And I took the course. And at the end of the course, a couple of people from the class who I quite liked and who I'd enjoyed approached me and said, do you want to join our offsite critique group? I was so honored. And that was the genesis. And so for 20 years, we've been meeting and critiquing one another. And it has um, been so wonderful. Like it has been almost more than writing the books, the critiquing group, mm-hmm. this sort of monthly meeting of people that I would not know in my regular life. I wouldn't have come across them. They're sort of from all walks of life. One now lives in Scotland, one lives in North Bay. Um, oh, so wow. it's scattered. Yeah. But um, to sort of talk about this one special thing that was that we were all kind of persisting at without a ton of encouragement, you know, <laughs> lots of projection for the whole group. And then to to get creative and be like, oh, you know, I like your story. I like this part, but what if instead of the sister, it was the mother and then somebody else would be like, oh, that's a great idea. And then the, you know, it's this, yeah. like that itself was such a, is so creatively fulfilling. So when I would be disappointed about another rejection on another book and like, you know, putting another book away, I would think, well, I'm writing like my group and we meet and we have some fun and we, and it's so fulfilling. So that really sustained me. So critiquing group for me has been massively important. And then over the years, I've, you know, I've signed up, I've paid for some courses here and there. I've done some webinars more and more. There's so much, so much free. There's so many free resources. Podcasts now are huge. And I was listening to your interview with uh, Huck Beard and he was talking about podcasts. I was like nodding along. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's such a great resource now. So there's, I think there's a lot more now, but so more and more I've, I've kind of plugged into those. And, Mm -hmm. and like I said, so many free, wonderful ways to kind of get encouragement and and learn and make connections. Yeah. It's amazing. And I think even in the last two years, because everyone has kind of been forced to get online in order to yeah. make those connections. I think it's, you know, yes, the pandemic sucks, but in, yeah. you know, the silver lining is that all these connections that we've been making with people probably wouldn't have happened or, or at least not to the extent that it has. So I think you got to look at the positives too. 
There's definitely a lot that has come out of the last couple of years. And so sensitivity readers, I understand that you have used sensitivity readers. So why did you decide you needed them and how did you find them? Yes. So I've used sensitivity readers for two of my novels. Honeybee Emerald uh, has, I have four point of view characters and one of them is uh, a British Iranian woman, which I'm not a what, I'm not a plotter. I'm a pantser. So she just emerged mm-hmm. on the page. I wasn't planning it, but she arrived and she's wonderful. And so I wrote this character. I had always been interested in Iran. So it was kind of it sort of came from there. And I did a ton of reading, lots of autobiographies to try to try to get a sense of her, who she was. As a white woman, I knew that I needed to be very careful and sensitive and thoughtful in how I portrayed her and what her thinking patterns were, et cetera. And so then when I finished it, I knew that if, if this book was to get published, I, I, I did not want it to be published without first talking to someone and having some sort of a sensitivity read. So as soon as it was published, the first, one of the first things I said is that's great, but I'm, I need a sensitivity reader. And so I found this person, although the publisher had offered to help, but um, I had some, some connections that I used, but I looked on Facebook, I looked through Twitter. Google searching. I contacted some Iranian, British, British Iranian expat groups, and then some in the United States as well, just, you know, saying, do you have somebody who, do you have a sort of cultural area? Do you have somebody who might be willing to do this? Always, it was very clear that I was going to pay for this service because it's mm-hmm. a huge service. You're somebody's reading your manuscript and giving you a critique. So I was very happy to, to pay for that. So Eventually, I found this terrific woman on the West Coast who read read the manuscript and didn't have anything major, which uh, was such a relief because I I had put a lot of research in there. But she certainly did call me on a few things, some sloppy expressions or uh, things that I wasn't even aware of, but that I needed to address. And then, yeah, I got some details wrong, which I was so irritated because I thought I I thought I did it all right. But they at one point someone's eating the wrong thing. She's like, no, no, that's a that's a holiday food. They would never just, she would never eat this on, on a regular. Yeah. So anyway, so it was, it was a great experience. And then I sent that off to the publisher and then they said, you know what, we will also do another one. So it actually had a second review, which was delighted me. And there was, again, a couple of things for people where somebody pushed back and said, Hey, wait a second. What about, and I incorporated that as well. So that was um, for the honeybee emeralds. And then in another book that's coming out next, next year called speak for the dead, I have a storyline that involves um, Indigenous land claims. And so, again, I wasn't from a point of view of an Indigenous person, but they were dealing with Indigenous issues, and I wanted to make sure that I was handling those sensitively. And so that, because it was more local to my area, to Ottawa, I I had more connections. And so I was able to reach out to the First Nation, to the cultural center of the First Nation directly, just called them up and said, do you have someone who can do this? And I, and I got a wonderful editor from there who, again, read it and gave me useful feedback that I've incorporated. And he was really, um, really fantastic and encouraging, which was great. And before I had done that, I had done my own research. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I tried to write it as sensitively as I could. But you, I'm coming from a, uh, from a settler perspective and I, I don't always get it right. So I'm really happy to get that feedback. But it does seem for people who are looking for sensitivity readers, it's out there and it's findable. At first, I was quite nervous about it, but yeah, all the experiences have been really wonderful, and it's such a it's such a useful service and mm-hmm. so helpful, and it just enriched the novels so much. So I'm really really pleased about that. 
anything you can do, well, obviously we want to pay attention to the sensitivity aspect, but it also it's going to make it more authentic too, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, it improves the writing. Like it's yeah. it's just why wouldn't you do this? Of course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in the time before you signed with Turner Publishing, is it Turner Publishing or is it I guess Key Light is the imprint? How was the query process for you? Well, <laughs> again, I think it's probably pretty difficult. Yeah. I queried I queried agents so for for the Honeybee Emerald, which was the latest one, I had a big long list of agents who I thought would be good fits, who would get excited. I didn't get much traction. I did get a few requests for partial or full. I got a couple of fulls, but never, it kind of never moved forward. I was doing all of that before the shit no one tells, uh, the shit no one tells you about writing came on and having listened now to all those episodes of that podcast where the agents query the critiques, mm-hmm. no critique Crit- the queries. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm like, oh, the, my query letter wasn't good. Like I see that now okay. and I had revised it and I had worked on it and I thought it was good, but it didn't, it didn't do what it should have done. So mm-hmm. I think that that was a big part of it was I was just not getting uh, my foot through the door. One thing I did figure out was that I wasn't starting in the right place. So I had figured that out without that podcast. I put my, I started my book much, much more in the immediate, like with a sort of pivotal piece of action happening within the first five pages. So that, I think that also helped, but I had given myself a year the year came and went, I was ready to give up and shelve this manuscript, the honeybee emeralds and move on. I had a meeting with the manuscript I had paid because I was just before I did it. I was like, well, I'll give this one more kick. And so I had a critique from the manuscript Academy, which is Mm -hmm. another great resource. You you pay for it. So I paid for that. And I said to the agent, I think I'm going to, I think she gave me her feedback and I was like, I think I'm going to shelve it. She said, give it, give it a few more months, just give it till, till January. And so that I was like, okay, I'll give it to January. But I had decided by Christmas, I was like, okay, nothing has happened. I'm going to stop trying to query agents. I'm going to now work through the list of publishers, smaller publishers, not the big five who take unagented. And so that's what I was doing. I sent the manuscript right before Christmas off to Turner and along with a bunch of other publishers, I was just going down the list. Turner looked great. I was like, but I, in my head, I had shelved this manuscript. And then mm-hmm. I got the, I got an email saying, well, I'm really interested. And it was, it was life-changing. It was amazing. So that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it was sort of three weeks later, I would have. Oh, well, that's fantastic. <laughs> and it's, and it, it, it is that thing of it only takes one. Yes. And, yeah. and having the, and I understand now when agents and people are like, find the person who's passionate about your work because the acquiring editor at Turner was passionate. She had read it. She loved it. She was, she had questions about the thing. Why did this happen? And like, we had a conversation about my book. It was so affirming and wonderful and positive because until then, the only people who had read my, this book were people who loved me already. Yeah. They're sort of <laughs> obligated to say, yeah, it's awesome. For a few people I had paid, you know, to give me the critique of the first chapter or whatever. Yeah. So it was just like, oh my God, this is enough. Like if nothing else happens, the fact that I've had this conversation with this person who's so keen was enough. Fantastic. And then it's moved on from there even. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So how has that process, I mean, you said it was life-changing how has that process now and, you know, the fact that they have signed you for three more books, how has that changed you as an author and your your view about where you're going? Yeah, I really like this question because it's made me think. <laughs> <laughs> because up until that moment, up until January 2021, so a year ago, 
I didn't think if you'd asked, I wouldn't have told you I was an author. It was kind of, it wasn't, I wasn't ashamed, but I didn't advertise that this was the thing that I did, that I did writing. Nobody kind of, and I downplayed it. And I was like, oh, no, I got a lot of rejections, you know? Yeah. But that gave me permission to now be an author. And that gave me permission to go on social media and, you know, have an Amy Tector writes as my handle. Because, and I kind of came out of the closet to my, wider, you know, to my colleagues and my wider acquaintances that this actually is a thing that I do and that I take seriously. And I wish that wasn't the case. I wish that I had felt empowered 20 years ago when I was Mm -hmm. writing to call myself a writer and take that seriously, that part of myself, but I didn't. (laughs) And, And that would be my advice for anyone. Like if you're writing, you're a writer and you get a seat at the table, but I didn't feel that at all until I got permission. So I don't know what that mm-hmm. says from the character or what, what that means. But so in that way, it was massively, that's why it was like a transformative because I'm claiming this now as part of who I am without feeling like an imposter. Yeah. I think that's so common though. I think yeah. everybody goes through that. I think people go through that even after they're published because you're writing something new and what if they don't like it as much as the last one, right? Yeah. So there's yeah, always, sure. I, uh, I'm just going to, you just reminded me of a, a post that I put on Instagram today that I think is appropriate. It's about believing in yourself as a writer, right? So on the shit no one tells you about writing, Bianca interviewed Alka Yoshi. I think that's how you pronounce her name. And the quote, I put a quote of hers from that interview on Instagram today, just sharing one of my favorite author quotes. And it really stuck with me because it's so important and it's so true. And she said, Toot your own horn as frequently and as loudly as you can, because if you believe in yourself, then you are able to convey that belief to other people and you should. And I think like that was so profound because so many people don't believe in themselves enough to persist and just, you know, keep going and look at what happens when you do keep going. Right. Yeah. You will get there if that's what you really want. So I think, you know, believe in yourself other people are going to believe in you too. Yeah. You might not have all that confidence to begin with, but you're going to get it if you want it for sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And this, like this idea that a gatekeeper decides that you're today, you're a writer, to, you know, or, you know, you're not a writer. Now you are a writer. You are an author. Now you're not an author. It's, it's baloney. Yeah, <laughs> it totally do is. Do it. Yeah. Yeah. If you write, you're a writer. That's what it comes down to. So you write in book club fiction and mystery. Have you always written in these genres? Are these new genres for you? Have you, do you want to write in other genres? Yeah. So mostly this is what I've done. Uh, mystery. I do love, I love uh, taking something historical and then having the contemporary people have to find that historical thing to solve their contemporary problem. That's all my, well, my most recent books, the ones that are going to see the light of day all have an element of that. So I do love that. And whether that's a, like a murder mystery or more of the Honeybee Emeralds, which is more of um, like book club fiction, I guess. I love that. And I think I'll continue to do that. I do. Around Christmas this year, I was like, oh, it would be fun to write a Christmas romance, like a fun yeah. <laughs> ginger ready snowflakes <laughs> Christmas romance. So uh, who knows? I, maybe. But I got a lot to do before I can get to that. But it might that that might be something fun. Just just a light, fun thing I I'm sure it's uh, well it would be challenging because it would be a new it would be a departure for me so I'm not sure I could pull it off but I'd like I might like to give that a whirl just yeah like shorter too would be great it'd be fun to co-author I think something like that 
Yes. Yeah. yeah. Hash it out. Karma Brown and Marissa Stapley, right? Yeah. So yeah. Co-authored. I think that's amazing. I, my writer, Bestie and I, we have plans to co-author a book at one point. So we're kind of throwing out some ideas. Yeah. But I think it would be really fun. I think it'd be a fun experience for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it just sort of takes the pressure off. And, you know, as long as you don't have a, you know, you're not writing to a deadline, you can sort of do the first one at least and mm-hmm. see how it works. And yeah, yeah. it'll be fun. Where do you get your inspiration for your stories? I, I You were talking about the archives and that. So are there any other resources that kind of provide that inspiration? Yeah. I'm my ace in the hole. Is that the expression? I'm my <laughs> ace up the sleeve. <laughs> my back pocket. I, I'll stop. But yes, I... <laughs> My sister is a doctor, so she, one of my sisters, I have a ton of them, uh, but one of them is an emergency room doctor, so she's always got stories. She, of course, never tells me any personal details, but will sometimes come off a shift and be like, holy cow, this crazy thing happened, or this heartbreaking thing happened, or this hilarious thing happened, so that's wonderful. She is also a coroner. Oh, in Ontario, yeah, it's a med- it depend different jurisdictions are different, but in Ontario, the medical doctors are coroners. So mm-hmm. she so she works as a coroner. So my mystery speak for the dead, which will come out next year, has its protagonist as a is a coroner. And mm. my sister Susie mm. gets extensively thanked in those accounts. Because <laughs> yeah. her because uh, it's, it's so rich. I mean, it's this you know, this, this moment of death and sadness but so much else goes on like the sort of the administration of death is, is fascinating mm-hmm. and she's an inspiration I love that title by the way speak for the dead oh, I just I want to read it just based off the title that's awesome okay. <laughs> and now that I know kind of the context <laughs> that makes it even more interesting okay <laughs> so we follow each other on social media and I'm curious about how the writing community has been for you in terms of developing your writing or learning how to navigate writing and publishing again, huge since last year. So I shot myself in the foot by being too shy to participate Mm. years ago. But as soon as I was allowed, as soon as I felt like I was allowed to to participate, it's been so uh, supportive and nourishing. So I'm I'm active on Twitter and Instagram. I still don't 100% understand how Instagram works, but (laughs) I'm I'm more comfortable on Twitter, but I'm trying on Instagram too. And I just find those connections to be amazing and sustaining the emerging writers and then the, the published authors. People are so generous, you know, and I've learned so much and been plugged into things I didn't even know existed and resources. So that's been really wonderful. I also found via Twitter a debut authors group. So people who were debuting in 21, 22. And so we have like a separate Slack channel. And that has been enormously helpful too, because it's a safe place to say, I signed my contract and it has, you know, it says X, Y, Z. Is that normal? Or mm-hmm. I'm not getting any marketing support. What kind of support do you guys get? Or, you yeah. know, all those kinds of questions people can answer. So that's been really nice too. How so, did you find that? How did you get involved in that? I think I started Googling debut author groups, okay. <laughs> something like that. And what seems to happen is that they have them because I'm now on a Facebook one too, that I discovered, which is called new in 22. So if you're publishing in okay. 22, you can join this private Facebook group, but they seem to exist. So if you look, even use the hashtag like debut, and then the year that you're debuting, or I read an article, there's also the debutantes debutantes and they they, so and that's a website that features a few debut authors for the for a whole year of their debut 
And then there's also a, now there's a podcast called De Beautiful, I think. Okay. So there's, so there's resources. It's a nice acknowledgement that, especially if you don't have an agent, which I don't have, it's, it's super helpful to, to just reassure yourself of what's normal and what isn't. That sounds like an amazing resource. I think that's definitely necessary. And especially if you're not agented, right? Because you don't yeah. have that looking out for those things where you yeah. learn everything yourself and make sure that you're looking out for yourself and your best yeah. interests. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard right. to know. It's a, it's a new industry. So if you've never yeah. worked in it, then it's, it's all new. Yeah, absolutely. So what has been your biggest learning curve since starting out writing? I'm going to say more than 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think becoming a better writer, yeah. like just the craft of writing has been my learning curve. Cause when you're a big reader, which I was, I was like, Oh, I can do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, you know, as everyone I'm sure has experienced, you write the first one, you're like, Oh, this is amazing. And then you, <laughs> and yeah. then you realize no, it isn't all I've done <laughs> is tell uh, my characters are flat. Uh, all my characters are nice. Cause I don't want to have any bad guys. There's no conflict, you know, all the yeah. things that, you know, huge blocks of text, all just the the uninterested characters, the lack of forward momentum, all those things I have learned. It's amazing what goes, I mean, you don't really know what goes into all those words on this published books pages until you see it from this side. Like, yeah, it's so amazing how much work goes into it and how how much revision and like over and over again until those words are perfected on that page that you see when you open the book that you just bought from a bookstore, right? Yeah. There's so much unknown <laughs> and so much you don't see behind those words. Yeah. And I thought, <laughs> I just think back to my 20 year old <laughs> arrogant self and because yeah. I studied English literature. So I was like, Oh, Oh, I'm an expert. I know how, cause I've studied, I know the themes and the societal imports and the, the, post-colonial narratives that are being <laughs> it's like but that's not the same as actually being able to write like you mm-hmm. can analyze and, and pick out and and you know be in awe of books as a reader you can pull them apart and understand all that but to actually do it is a whole other sphere that um, mm-hmm. that's super challenging and very fun and satisfying to learn like I'm sure all your listeners yeah know. Yeah. You know what I found too? I read books a lot differently now than how I used to. I'm constantly analyzing and thinking, oh, you know, like I'm thinking, I can see how they did that now, you know, whereas before you just, you just read it and you love it or you don't. And that's the end of it. But now I'm very analytical. Yeah. And, and sometimes I feel sad about that, right? Like I just want to, and I, I think if a book really hits me, right. I do just get swept away. Yes. if it's not hitting exactly right, you you then see the seams and you're like, uh-huh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know yeah. what you're up to. <laughs> exactly. I I actually just read, I read Verity by Colleen Hoover um, with a couple of other people. And it's it's heavy. <laughs> okay. But she did such an amazing job. Like the writing is it's unbelievable. It's it was so good. So you, you know, when you get those books and you do immerse yourself into them then you're not as analytical but I'm still thinking oh man I love how she did that or you know whatever the case may be but yeah sometimes you just get those books and you kind of forget that you're also a writer and still trying to figure out the ropes and and all that kind of stuff so I love it when that happens but yeah I I do analyze even if I enjoy it I'll go back because I'm if I'm writing or sorry if I'm reading on my Kindle I'll 
I'll highlight things so that I can go back. I can enjoy the story now and go back and and remind myself to look at those things and how they, how they did them. So honeybee emeralds, can you give us a bit of the premise? Yeah, it's um, it's a lighthearted mystery set in Paris and it features three women who discover a beautiful diamond and emerald necklace. And they set about trying to discover who were the previous owners in order for them to return the necklace. And then they there's sort of a side plot where they want to publish a big story about it and save this struggling magazine. So those three protagonists have to delve into, the, into history and into the past. They have to go to various archives, the beautiful Richelieu Library in Paris, which is just a stunning building, wineries and, and jewelry stores and all sorts of places. They sort of traipse around Paris trying to uncover the mystery and then meanwhile we as the readers learn a bit about its history so the and the necklace is owned by these three fabulous real historical figures Marguerite Belanger who is described as Napoleon III's sauciest mistress so she's this amazing woman who had this very she was born the daughter of a washerwoman and she ends up being this like the most influential courtesan in all of Europe. So, you know, has had this wonderful rags to riches story and she's really feisty. And then Matahari is another one of my owners of the necklace. And so she, of course, is the famed First World War spy who is accused of espionage and, and betraying France. And she ends up being executed by firing squad. And there's all sorts oh. of questions about whether or not she was framed and if she mm-hmm. was in fact a spy. And she's got a super interesting, uh, really sad story that doesn't often get told you sort of you think of her as a bit of a seductress and a and a spy but there's a lot more going on there and then the third woman is Josephine Baker who is just such a fascinating figure she was born the daughter the granddaughter of slaves in St. Louis Missouri and was a dancer and a singer and went to Paris right after this the first world war and became the toast of Paris and kind of escaped a lot of the really um, heavy racism in the United States at the time and was able to carve out this amazing decades-long career as this sort of toast of Parisian uh, entertainment. And she like had a pet cheetah and she was rumored to have slept with Charles de Gaulle and Frida Kahlo. Like she (laughs) adopted 12, 12 children and lived in a chateau and went bankrupt and dripped diamonds and just was this larger than life amazing person she was a she was a spy in the second world war and was a member of the resistance like just lived a big life so it was yeah. super fun to be able to incorporate a tiny bit of her life into the story but yeah so the book sort of gives you glimpses into those women's lives while these contemporary women are working hard to resolve the mystery and manage their own friendships and marriages and children concerns and career concerns that sounds amazing. Is it kind of a dual timeline? It's not so dual. It, you do, you get you get to hear those three women speak. Okay. Um, or you, yeah, you get to hear and see those three women speak. It's a bit maybe like Kate Morton, um, if you've read any of hers. So you, um, it's mostly contemporary with sort of glimpses back into history to tell you a little bit about the, the personality of those women and then where they interacted with the necklace in their okay. in their lives. Awesome. And what are you working on right now? So you have those, the, you've been contracted for those other three books. Um, yeah. Where are you at with that? So <laughs> as it turns out, I've maybe bit off more than I can chew because <laughs> two of those books are already written. So they need to be edited and polished and made better, but they are good to go. So 
My next book, The Foulest Things, will come out in the autumn. And that's a mystery centered around uh, fictional archives, the Dominion archives, and then Speak for the Dead, which has the coroner, but also features archives will come out the following spring. And then I have to write a book for this fall, which will be Honor the Dead. And that'll come out then autumn 2023. So I'm editing (laughs) two books and writing a book at the moment. So how does that work when... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. How does it work when the when you get a contract for a book that hasn't been written? How do you know that, yeah, okay, I'm going to do this or, you know, oh my goodness, I don't know if I can do this. And I guess you don't know really from, from their standpoint, but where do you think they are coming from? You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't like, I don't know. And I don't have an agent. So, I, <laughs> so this is where I'm like, boy, I'd like an agent to help me with this, but they are confident and keen. So I'm like, okay, this is what we'll do. The first two books that are already written, they've read and mm-hmm. liked. So those ones are good. I'm a, the third book, I feel some pressure to make sure that it's yeah. what they want. Presumably if I hand it in and they're like, this is no good, they will deal with it yeah, <laughs> yeah. go forward. But yeah. Did you have to give them a synopsis or an idea of something? I gave them, but not, not a, not a long one. So, uh, cause I'm not a plotter. So I yeah. said, this is, you know, you've read the first two books that are loosely connected through the archives. The third book, this is what I'm intending to happen. And they said, Oh, that looks, that looks really good. So, you know, and gave me half my advance and said, go to it. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. That's, yeah. But it's, it's different for me. Cause I've never written no one's, you know, I've never written something yeah. because someone wanted it. So yeah. I went a deadline. Yeah. I wonder how, like, I wonder what the difference is. Maybe we'll have to circle back at some point in, yeah. uh, in the fall. Yeah, let's talk I wonder about what it. the difference is between, you know, writing when you've done, you go, you don't have any deadlines uh-huh. and you don't, you know, no expectations. And then the opposite where you've yeah. got a deadline and you, and you have to, you have to do it. <laughs> yeah. So let's not talk about it now. Cause I don't want to do yeah. myself. <laughs> I'm happy to come back because the other thing too, is it's a series. So I have to, now I'm like, Oh, what did I say? What, how do I talk? How much yeah. do I reveal? How much do I reveal in this book about what happened previously? Cause I don't want to spoil it. If someone reads this book first, but I want mm-hmm. characters to have grown and developed and been affected by what happened. So I trying to figure that out. Well, I'm sure you're going to do a great job. It sounds like they've already they've already committed to some and they like your writing. So I'm sure it's going to be great. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. What is your favorite and your least favorite part of the whole writing process? So my favorite part is editing and my least favorite part is writing. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Yes. Yeah. Like the actual when there's a blank page and now I've got to put something on there. I don't like that at all. I don't, I, I've tried to outline and I just, it freaks me out. So I don't, I just write mm-hmm. and I don't often know what I'm going to write until my fingers are moving. It's an inefficient way to do it because I don't like doing, cause it's like, oh, this is so hard. I don't know what I should like. I have nothing. I have nothing. I'm just mm-hmm. so making up as you go. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. so making up as I go. None of it makes sense. It's all stupid like the characters are doing weird things there's weird plot (laughs) tangents that go nowhere and I'm just like just get it down just put down all of this nonsense and then when I've got a nice like 
hefty 70, 80,000 words. I'm like, okay, what is this now? And then I go back and that's when I get really excited because I'm like, oh, I could do this and I could do that. That's why this, she's going to go there. And then I, and then I rewrite. That's the part where I get excited because I can see that it's okay. Until I start editing, I am worried that I've just written a lot of nonsense. I write mysteries. So like this one that I've now, I, I didn't know who the killer was until sort of 60 Same. in. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have to go back and put clues in and red herring. So it's, yes. it's not efficient. Like it's not, yeah. I don't advise this for me, other people. <laughs> so lastly, what would your top five tips be for writers who are going through the querying stage and dealing with those rejections? I know that that's, it's a topic that's talked about a lot, but I'm just wondering, you wrote some books ahead of time and you, you know, this is your fifth book. You said that, that um, you finally got accepted for publication. So what would your advice be for, for writers that are going through that currently? Yeah. I mean, there's lots of advice and I mean, it, it's hard. So mm-hmm. <laughs> first and foremost. <laughs> firstly, I think is to try to find the joy in the creative process, whether it's the writing or the editing or the critiquing or the whatever, like make that actually your focus, not this external validation. I mean, I'm saying this, <laughs> we've talked about how I need external <laughs> validation, but I see the error of my ways. So like as much as possible, just sustain yourself that way, creative through the creative process as your number one goal. Then don't take rejection personally, which I got quite good at. So I am pleased. I am pleased that I was rejected so much because I do think I can really take it now. And it's, and it's helpful because it's not personal, so subjective doesn't mean that your writing's not good. Doesn't mean that you're not good. Like it's just a lot of it is luck. And so you can't take it personally. Don't get down, keep going. That what we've already talked about, about if you're writing, you're a writer that like, believe that mm-hmm. <laughs> learn from me. <laughs> like, it's true. <laughs> and I see it, but I couldn't, I couldn't live it. And then I found as well that it is helpful to get that outside advice. So like on one hand, believe in yourself, but also be open to critique. You don't have to take it. You don't have to, if it doesn't jive with what, with what you're trying to do or the person hasn't got it fine, but listen to it and consider it before you reject it. And it sort of goes in with, don't take it personally, especially in the early days, you know, you react like, Oh, you didn't like this character. How, how dare you, or you're stupid or whatever, but no, like what didn't they like about the character? What, is, yeah. is there some validity there? You don't have to, you don't have to incorporate the changes, but so much value in getting outside opinions on that. And then also when you're actually querying, get many, many, many people to look at your query. Because like I said, I don't think I, I don't think my queries were strong and I thought they were. There's tons of paid resources, people who will do it. And then there's tons of unpaid people who can, who will have great ideas. So don't be afraid to reach out, which is where that writing community can come in handy too, because you can get a lot of support for that there. And then the last thing, probably everybody knows about it, but it took me a while to find it. Query Tracker is just such a great tool for for that. And there's a free version and it's not much to upgrade to the paid. And then you're supporting the wonderful person who's managing Query Tracker and you get a few more bells and whistles. So use Query Tracker. I mean, maybe there's other tools out there too, but that's what I used and it was hugely helpful. Yeah, I I found that I I kind of stumbled upon it when I first started querying, which was amazing. It makes everything so much easier, and it just keeps track of everything. I think it's only I don't know twenty five bucks, yeah, it's, US it's or something for for yeah. the year, so it's worth yeah. it. 
Um, I have found it to be very helpful. And there is a free version too. Yeah. If if the 25 is too much, but it's nice to throw that person to pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a huge, huge database. Well, and there's a community there too, right? Like there's forums and things. So people yeah. think if people, if you've, you know, had a dicey encounter with someone you're not sure about, I think you could go to those forums and, and see what other people's experiences. Have been. Mm-hmm. Awesome. It was great chatting with you. Yeah, this is really nice. Well, thank you so much for coming and chatting with me. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. And I really hope to see you at the hashtag mood pitch event. And again, that is coming up on April 7th. We're planning to do it twice a year. So there will be another one in November, but the first one is April 7th. We've got agents and editors that are gonna come out and look at all these great pitches and your mood boards. So definitely check that out from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern time. And as always, keep being badass.